I'm Brent Kermelitic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. And today we welcome to the podcast architect Tisha Lee, a director at design firm K2LD. Since graduating from the University of Melbourne, Tisha has accumulated over 20 years of experience working on significant educational, residential and civic precinct projects. Before joining K2LD in 2007, Tisha was previously a senior associate with Hassel, where she was responsible for the management of a dedicated team working on educational and community projects for both the state government and the private sector. She says that her greatest career satisfaction comes from the delivery of buildings that are exemplars of the input from her clients and the uniqueness of site peculiarities. She's particularly strong at handling large stakeholder groups and project management. So welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Tisha Lee. Thank you, Branko. Lovely to be here today. Looking forward to our conversation. Um, so tell me, how are firms such as yours coping with the pandemic, specifically ones that are like like you guys based in uh, based in Melbourne, where we all know the lockdown has been the most severe, the longest, and, and <laughs> what, what I can see the most painful. Um, look, it's it's definitely been a challenging time. Um, twenty twenty is probably a year that a lot of us um, are never ever going to forget. That's for sure. Um, yeah. But I think you know, with the challenges, have come a lot of really great things as well. Um, uh, practice, I think, has embraced the change really well um, and the challenges really well. We were able to pivot thanks to the um, introduction of all this new technology very, very quickly. So um, we were basically able to put everything to, into the cloud um, and see all of our stuff uh, start working from home as of the third week of March. Um, so that was quite a tremendous change in a very short amount of time. Um, you know, I, I think we were all really a little bit fearful because it was something that we um, hadn't experienced before and it was unknown at that point in time. But I think, you know, working in the design field, we are used to having to kind of pivot with changes very quickly. So I think um, it certainly pushed us all to embrace this new te technology, get on board very quickly. The technology has really helped us um, to collaborate in a way that is unique and different um, and which we didn't experience previously before. So um, examples of that, you know, we are able to jump onto each other's screens, um, share the work through the different platforms. And it's not just um, helping our collaboration as a practice, but also helping our collaboration with our clients as well. So yes, it has been challenging, but I think it's also been really great in, in other ways. Um, it's certainly transformed the way that we operate as a practice. And I think we'll continue to transform that moving forward. Uh, imagine if imagine if this pandemic hit 30 years ago, there'd be a lot of faxing going on, wouldn't there? <laughs> um, to get off technology for a moment, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, doing a, writing up articles and, and posting articles on the website about diversity in the work, workplace. Um, and I've noticed that your, your K2LD is, is quite a diverse um, workplace. Do, does diversity in the workplace lead to does it actually lead to diversity in product design? Um, and can you give me an example? Um, I, I believe it does. Look, our, our practice is combined, uh, combined of, um, we're about 14 staff in the Melbourne practice. We've got people from about 20 
plus different countries. Um, and we've also got really great kind of gender equality in our practice as well. We're nearly 50-50 in terms of our percentages. What, I, what I've seen um, through this ability, and I'm really fortunate that all this happened pre the pandemic because, you know, it'd be really hard for people to get into Melbourne given all the challenges that we've had. But what I've really seen by having this diversity in the workplace is that we're able to view our projects from um, a really different lens. So what I've found with employing um, architects or designers from different parts of the world is that they have skills or specialties in areas that we may not necessarily have in Australia. So for example, I've, I've got a couple of, um, you know, Irish staff who are really brilliant when it comes to technical details. I think, you know, the things that they're doing over there in terms of facade materiality, detailing, um, kind of product testing and engineering over there are leaps and bounds ahead of what we have in Australia. And being able to have, you know, that kind of workforce and that skill set come into your office really helps us to kind of get ahead in terms of, you know, facade design and technical detailing. Um, on the other hand, I've seen those um, architects who've come from Asia and have really great kind of high-rise commercial experience. You know, Asia's been through a tremendous boom. Um, there's been a lot of building of really tall buildings over there and they're not afraid to take risks in terms of really creative architectural forms. So I found from, you know, some of our Asian designers coming over, um, inclusive my partner, David himself, being able to bring that taller building experience into Australia again has really helped push the practice forward. Um, and that, that goes the same with our collaboration. You know, we, we do have a Singapore practice as well. Um, they work with some extremely high budgets when it comes to high-end residential stuff. Um, they are able to tap into materials and fixtures and fittings that we have just, again, never seen in Australia. So I think being able to bring that in also opens up a whole different world and spectrum to us. So I've, I've found that all these different perspectives have really helped us to be able to bring unique kind of design points and selling points to the service that we provide our clients. Okay, well, on the theme of diversity, let's, let's continue with that, but let's talk about typologies. I read somewhere that you wrote that that working, uh, working cross typologies in the office le leads to a greater appreciation of people, work and life. Mm. Uh, as a journalist, I actually have no idea what that means. <laughs> actually, can you actually explain? Because I, I was quite fascinated by, by, by what, what you were trying to say there. Um, I, I guess there's kind of no time like the present to actually talk about that. I mean, if you, if yeah. you take the current environment that we've got um, and you take... Um, our homes and our residences, you know, there were places where we basically just lived, right? Um, but now we've been, we are being forced to actually adapt and bring our work life or our study life, you know, fully into this space. Um, but I think, you know, K2LD works across a number of um, sectors. So we, we do, you know, commercial buildings, we do multi-res buildings, we also do a lot of schools as well. And what we found is having an understanding of each of those sectors actually helps, again, to bring unique perspectives when you are delivering to one of them. So, for example, schools, um, you know, schools are, yes, they are institutional buildings, but we also want our kids and our families to feel really comfortable when they're going into the school environment, because we know that when um, a design is able to bring the right kind of texture and materiality and color and light into a space to make a person feel good, then that person has the ability to absorb their learning um, so much better. So I think, you know, we don't want schools to look like, um, you know, little institutional boxes, being able to bring some of the softness and the elements from the home environment, for example, and bring that into a school environment 
really helps people to feel more comfortable when they're in that space. All right, that's interesting. So yeah, you are right. It, um, but it's interesting. So when, when you are, when we are work, we, not just you, because we're all working from home, um, you know, but as a designer, there's, there's, a, there's a collaborative phase you know, to your work, much more than, let's say, as someone like myself. Um, you know, how does the collaborative uh, process, you know, influence the physical and emotional design of, of let's say, a workplace? And how is that actually constrained with the, how you're working now? Um, so if I take my office, for example, uh, one of the things that we worked really hard on was to kind of break down that idea of a commercial office space. Um, the commercial office space for me has a certain kind of stigma about it and a certain kind of behaviour that's informed by how it looks and feels. Cater World really prides itself on um, being kind of almost like a family-based business. We, we are one big family. We design together. We work together. We want to be able to throw ideas up together. So how we went about actually designing the space um, was to allow a variety of different activities to happen in the one place, but also um, in, in the kind of office-type areas that we knew that we would have, we worked really hard to not make it feel so corporate so that people could have that level of engagement. I'll give you some examples. So, for example, when we walk in our front door of the office, it doesn't look like um, a sterile kind of waiting area. The first thing that one sees is a living room. Um, so it's got the rug, it's got a nice, you know, sofa, a nice armchair. The whole um, point of that is to try and create an environment that a person immediately feels comfortable in. And they know that they could be just sitting there waiting for a meeting, but they could also use that space to be able to sit down and have a conversation with one of the designers over a piece of work and feel really comfortable as if we'd taken that to their own home. Um, another example of that is our kitchen area. The kitchen area is a six metre long um, giant solid wood uh, timber table. Um, and that, you know, it's deliberately on display to our clients as they walk in. It shows the idea of the big family. It shows the idea of a space where people can sit down and have great discussions. Again, that comes back to that idea of home. You know, a lot of really great conversations with our family happen around the kitchen table or the kitchen island bench. And being able to do that and collaborate around the kitchen island bench is also really important as part of our work. So um, I think, you know, as designers, we've worked really hard to try and create spaces where people feel really comfortable and they feel confident to be able to sit down and collaborate and have genuine conversations with us. Um, it's the same in our boardroom as well. Our boardroom looks nothing like a boardroom. It looks like a big dining table. It's got beautiful soft carpet beautiful timber ceiling, um, the light fittings are a, a zigzag kind of pendant light fitting. The whole point is to get a person to go in there, feel comfortable, comfortable, feel that they can let their guard down and be really open and honest with us about, you know, the design process and what's happening in that design process. Now, taking into account what's happened now um, in the current world, obviously that's been a little bit challenging, but we, again, through technology are using a number of different platforms um, and I guess a number of different settings in order to be able to get our clients to feel comfortable in that space as well. So we've tried to take that collaborative element of what we do and move it on to, I guess, technological platforms to be able to still try and achieve that same level of, of collaboration with our clients. So there's almost a, a sense of equality or egalitarianism there I'm hearing from you. Is yes. That correct? Yeah, yeah, I think that's really important, not just within our practice ourselves, um, but also between the client and architect as well. 
Um, we, we believe that the best outcomes are those that come through a journey with each other. So we don't want to, we're not there to actually dictate an outcome or to tell you that you have to have a design that is specific like this. Um, we really want to go through that process of discovering who you are and you discovering who we are, working together with the peculiarities of sight in order to bring something unique and beautiful to fruition. Um, we also are not afraid of listening to different viewpoints. So um, that egalitarianism within our office extends, um, you know, with our, our staff as well. Every voice is important to me. You know, whether you are a graduate who's just come out of uni or whether you are a student who's doing an internship with us, um, I think, you know, in a creative industry, we need to be listening to all the different voices because, you know, people are, are tapping into different connections and they are also engaged with different walks of life and something able to see things from a unique perspective is really important. It's interesting you say that so that there's you've got this like I guess lack of hierarchy in a way um, and you know I guess I assume that that's how, how you, you'd like to also plan and design offices as mm. well. Um, I'm just wondering how does it actually you know in the real world, when project managers get involved, how does, how does that actually then translate uh, where, you know, we have an environment where, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about price, right? Um, I think one of the things we need to recognise as architects is there, there, there is a budget. There's always going to be a budget. Um, and I think the, the sooner you embrace the challenges of a budget, the more successful your project is going to be. If you ignore the fact that there is a budget and just go off and do whatever you feel like doing, it's always harder to make things actually then kind of um, turn into something that um, can be, you know, uh, realised. I think a lot of that experience comes from the government projects that we work on um, and the fact that, you know, the, the government is very clear in terms of what they have to spend and how we have to spend it. So that's something that... Um, mm -hmm. We, we don't shy away from, and you know, from the youngest member of our office through to the oldest member of our office, we do make it very clear that, you know, we need to be responsible. We need to be strategic, we need to be visionary, but we also need to be responsible in terms of how we deliver our clients' projects. Um, so I think, you know, every idea has to be also a, a tested idea. It's got to be examined and it's got to be interrogated properly to make sure that um, it can stand up to the test of project managers coming on board or developers coming on board or, uh, you know, builders coming in to, you know, value manage a project as well. So I think, you know, we, we don't stomp on creativity, but we are also very realistic in terms of, you know, what we can pursue and what we should be putting forward for our clients as well. I've seen uh, some interesting concepts over the past few months in terms of what designers are doing in, in terms of designing you know, for the, the new normal. <laughs> um, what are some of your uh, examples or ideas of, 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 I guess, what you call COVID-friendly design or the new normal, whatever you want to call it? Um, look, I, I think COVID-friendly design is, is, has to be flexible and adaptable design. Um, we are at a point in time where everything is still in flux. Um, 
you know, for us to be able to predict one month ahead or even six months ahead is, is a near impossibility at this point in time. So I think, you know, as responsible designers, we need to be um, cognizant of the fact that whatever we are creating has to have some flexibility and adaptability for the future. Um, it also has to be able to cater for multiple users as well. Um, so I think, you know, if I bring it back to the idea of the home, we have had to pivot quickly to understand that our homes need to cater for multi-generations, you know. Now we're seeing a lot more people than, or a lot more generations than normal come back into the home. So for example, we, we could have three generations or even four generations in our home. And then coming from that, I think you've also got to think about how do, or what are the types of each of spaces that each of these generations need? You know, we could have two people trying to work at exactly the same time. Um, two people or two people trying to work and one trying to study and one also trying to read a book. So I think looking at the layering of spaces and how a particular zone can serve multiple functions throughout the course of a day, I think is really important because we can't all go out there and, you know, make enormous homes um, and conquer huge amounts of space. I don't think that's affordable, but um, looking at how a space can transition from one or to cater for one activity now and then perhaps another activity later in the day um, but, and perhaps for a different user group is also really important as well. So I think that's something that's been really key. The other thing that we have been considering a lot is, you know, how do we grapple with this change in commercial workspace as well? And, um, you know, how does commercial workspace transform to potentially other users um, moving forward? So if you think about commercial workspace, perhaps having to pivot and become residential space, um, you know, how do we deal with openable windows? How do we deal with sunlight? All those kind of things. We're starting to think about that in the practice as well. We're also starting to think about, you know, how do we change our mindset towards tall buildings? Um, and how, you know, do tall buildings cater for another kind of future pandemic if that were to ever come about? You know, how do we um, perhaps look at multiple lift cores? How do we break big buildings down into smaller communities? Those kind of things, they're, they're really having a significant impact impact on how we look at design moving forward. Do you think perhaps there's also going to be a, uh, a way that maybe sustainability in terms of design will be looked at differently now because we, we're spending more time in the home mm. um, and, and maybe, you know, the way we use energy, the way we design, as you're saying, for, you know, for a way windows open, the way sunlight's let in or not let in. Mm. Um, do you think that there'll be, there'll be some sort of, I guess, effect on, 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 on sustainable design with, with all everything that's happened? Um, I certainly think there'll be an effect in terms of what happens with our office spaces in the city. Um, you know, how, how we make those spaces sustainable or adaptable for a different potential use. Um, you know, we're seeing, I, I guess, a mass exodus out of the city at the moment and a lot of people are moving to, you know, talk, talking about either staying in their home and working from home long-term or looking at kind of suburban satellite offices. From a sustainable point of view, how we as architects respond to, I guess, all the building stock that we have in the city and what that can now become moving forward, I think is a really important consideration. Um, for us in Victoria, you know, how we deal with, for example, um, BADS compliance, the better apartment design compliance, and how you repurpose buildings to be able to meet those criteria, I think is, is going to be really interesting moving forward. Um, you know, the sustainability of buildings in terms of more the, the long-term um, view of buildings, I think is going to be important as well, because 
you know, we've got less people with less cash now, so we can't be such an instant kind of society or looking to change things so quickly all the time. So I think, you know, a, lo a, a more long-term approach to um, development of assets and how those assets, whether and where and how they can be um, used to adapt to, again, various different users, I think is really important as well. It's interesting, like, like with that, with that, what you just said. So I, I, over the past few years, I've, you know, interviewing architects and designers, you know, there, there, there's two ways I, I look at look at the profession. One is there, there's a there's a very very warm collegial type atmosphere, and at the same time, there are actually very entrenched views. Okay, from what, I, what I've noticed, and, and in terms of a lot of, you know, in terms of design, uh, design topologies in particular, you know, and what's appropriate for where. Okay, whilst there is, you know, uh, broad agreement, there's also people who have particular ideas about things. Um, over the past few years, we've seen speech go down the way of, you know, what, are the, what they call a cancel culture, where, you know, where speech well, that is uh, not not uh, thought thought to be uh, helpful or useful or nice to be to be wiped out. Do you think ever will go down the same path with design? You know, there are certain designs that need to be cancelled or never to be seen again? I would have to say that I think design as an idea will always exist. Um, design for me um, is very much about problem solving and it is about looking um, at what opportunities exist, you know, for a particular site, um, particular visions that come from a client and about bringing us bring, uh, I guess, a steady training and um, technical training to be able to bring a project to life. So I don't think the process or the discipline of design would ever disappear. I think what is likely to happen is that um, the, the hard and fast rules about certain typologies and the ingredients of certain types of, you know, design. So what makes up residential design or what makes up commercial design? I think that is likely true to transform over, you know, the next five to 10 years or so. I think um, what's happened as a result of this pandemic is it's really forced us to think about our behavioural patterns and our movement patterns a lot more and also about what we want in terms of our balance of work and life and, and um, you know, the, the personal things that we do within our 24 hours, seven days a week. So I think, you know, how a building responds to that and how a building um, creates opportunities for for those activities to happen will will transform as a result of these behavioural patterns changing over the last, you know, 12 months or so. I think there will be significant movements in some of these areas, but I don't think, you know, commercial design um, as an idea is going to disappear. I don't think, you know, commercial buildings will disappear. I think the nature and the ingredients of what happens in there might change. Do you think perhaps architects are becoming more important or, or more necessary than they ever were before? Because, because from my point of view, they are. I'm not an architect, obviously, but from what I've seen it's a, from when I started in this role, I think the, the role of architect is becoming a little bit more integral. Uh, mm -hmm. is, that just, is that my perception? Is that, is that, do you think that's the way it's going? Um, it's certainly how I feel and what I believe in. Um, I believe that the role of an architect is very much a strategist as well as a visionary. Um, we have a unique position where we bring, you know, um, kind of art and science and um, sociology together as well. I think, you know, we have the ability to interact with people and really kind of tap into their feelings and behaviours and emotions and kind of bring 
you know, a dream and a vision to life. So I think the role of an architect for me is not just about taking someone's brief and then putting, you know, a skin on it. I think what we really need to do is to help people to strategize what, what their needs are, what, what they want for the future, and then what the, how that actually impacts the city or the place that you're, or the context that you're injecting this into, and really look to bring that to life in a meaningful way. So what's on the cards for the next 12 months in terms of projects or, 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 or um, uh, trends for K2LD? Um, we have quite a number of multi-residential projects coming up. Um, we have quite a number that are coming up um, kind of in the inner eastern suburbs. Urban. Um, I'm, I'm seeing a really big t uh, trend in kind of downsizing from the, um, you know, larger homes through to more generous size apartments. I think um, what's ha also happened with COVID and, and the aged care scare, particularly here in Melbourne, um, has challenged a lot of people in terms of the idea of aging and perhaps aging in place um, rather than aging in an aged care home. So we've actually got quite a few of those types of projects on our books at the moment. Um, we are also seeing a lot of gov government stimulus work come through. So schools make up a big um, part of our portfolio. It's something that we've always loved doing. We love doing community work. Um, we love getting involved in and kind of, you know, improving and helping to change people's lives that way. Um, so with, with the government stimulus, um, I, I can see quite a big investment um, in schools and community projects coming through. So we um, are looking at that moving forward as well. You had your, your one wish to design anything that you wanted in the world, what would it be? Mm, that's an interesting one. <laughs> um, if I had my one wish to design something in the world, it would be a community centre for women. Okay. Um, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Thank you from K2LD. Thank you very much for, for being on uh, Talking Architecture and Design um, and congratulations of coming out of lockdown and I hope, um, I hope 2021 brings you a lot more luck than it's brought all of us. Uh, 2020 has brought all of us. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time. This has been a pleasure. I'm Brent Kermelitic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine.